welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey, everybody, hope you're having a great week this week. So, my guest is Dr. Mark Jenkins, and he is co founder and medical director at Aviva, which is a company digitizing behavior change therapy for lifestyle conditions like type 2 diabetes and obesity. So Mark and I have known each other a little while. We've known each other since I was at the Digital Health London Accelerator and Aviva were on that program. Uh, Mark trained as a doctor originally and he talks about his uh, reasons for leaving and get involved in technology towards the end of the episode. So uh, stay listening out for that. He trained at Guy's and St. Thomas's in London, uh, did an academic foundation program, did nephrology, but then worked at BCG Consulting. And after that, found his community to uh, found Aviva with. Uh, and since then, Mark's basically led Aviva's strategy and partnerships with the NHS and all of their stuff with the NHS in the UK. So uh, have a listen out for all of that info in this episode. So Mark, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing this morning, mate? I am not too bad. Thank you, James. Trying to keep cool. I see oh, mate, it is impossible to keep cool. I bought one of those Dyson fans, but I must say it's pretty ineffective unless it's like really loud, which is useless for podcasts. So I'm currently sweating. Um, whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Mark? I have actually come down to the coast to try and cool down. So I'm in oh, Brighton nice. where my family are. But oh, I can lovely. tell you it's not even that much cooler. <laughs> At least you can take a dip in the sea, mate. Mm, the channel. I mean, it's not, it's not <laughs> quite the Mediterranean. But. Fair. Fair. No, good point. Um, cool. And so the way we start these podcasts dude, is that I get you to tell your story. So people kind of start at university or, or med school, I suppose, for yourself and sort of work their career through. And I'll ask you a few questions. So yeah, for the benefit of our listeners, mate, why don't you tell us a bit about your story? Well, I'll try and give a relatively condensed version. <laughs> uh, We've got go a while, on. mate, so you don't need to. <clears throat> uh, so, you know, I think as per all people who are kind of good at sciences and maths and you're not really sure what you should do medicine seems like a good option so i ended up at medical school in london uh, and i had an incredibly incredibly good time and learned a lot and just because i always like to do something different even though i trained at guys and tommy's i did a intercalated year at imperial in surgery and the whole vibe on the imperial course was all about how to be an entrepreneur, how to set up businesses, how to like change healthcare from the inside. And, you know, there's lots of famous UK surgeons who created their own devices and instruments um, and including Prof Cobb who like led that course. So I think I almost got a bit of a, a much bigger insight into the world of business and medicine than I would have or most people have during their kind of early career. Yeah, that's really and cool then, to get it done early. Yeah, it's, it was, you know, it's really interesting just to see a completely different perspective. Um, and then McKinsey, which is management consultancy, was uh, kind of looking to tap into kind of future healthcare leaders and were offering a new program, which was a healthcare internship for medical students. Uh, when I was at Imperial, kind of specifically to people uh, studying there and so I was kind enough uh, you know to apply to that and get onto that and had a really really interesting and again different experience so I worked at McKinsey for my elective uh, whereas most people are in Fiji having a wonderful time uh, <laughs> and I'm sure you probably did something very the Bahamas, mate. yeah there you go there you the go. University of the West Indies in the Bahamas <laughs> see I did my pediatrics there oh, but, nice. I should have, 
but I should have done should have done my elective there. <laughs> uh, so I had an incredible experience at McKinsey. Learned again a huge amount about healthcare in business, and realised you know started to realise all the challenges in healthcare that are really exciting. These kind of big system problems for how yeah. do you redesign healthcare for the future? Yeah. Um, and then when I was in medical school, I also had a clinical supervisor who uh, strongly encouraged me to think about alternative careers, uh, which was really? very interesting as a, clinic, as a clinical supervisor. Wow. And uh, his rationale was that he, uh, you know, saw the clinical path as, as a kind of flywheel that you kind of get stuck down yeah. and your ability to do anything more diverse is actually really challenging. Yeah. Um, and also the kind of changes that he'd seen in the health system especially this kind of move away from firm structures to the kind of shift-based patterns that we have now, uh, especially in surgical training, he felt, you know, had, had changed things dramatically from what he would want to be offering uh, as a surgical training program. So wow. uh, I so we was always thinking about what my alternative options are, but I had a great um, role as an academic foundation doctor at Guy's and Tommy's for a couple of years, uh, studying nephrology, uh, which was really good fun. Until sort of, you know, as I was doing that, I realized micro pipetting 360 vials of <laughs> mill samples that took me like four hours to load into these like well plates. Yeah. That academia was not the right area for me. Fair enough. Uh, as much as I enjoyed listening to BBC Radio One and uh, Indigo <laughs> Bingo, which was the main thing that kept me going through my research. Uh, and then I actually started applying to consultancies and I ended up at BCG and I really wanted to just have a really broad business experience because I knew that I wanted to get into the uh, wider problems of healthcare. And, and I think, you know, there's kind of two kinds of doctors. There's the doctors who really like supporting one patient at a time. And there's another group of doctors who really like helping one patient at a time, but see their ability to have an impact at a kind of yeah, a greater absolutely. scale. And then that's what kind of pulls them in. Uh, yeah. You know, you can, it's just the size and scale of impact that you have. Uh, so I went there and I learned a lot, did a lot of different projects um, and, you know, learned what Excel was and how to make a slide <laughs> and, and all of the other standard things you're doing. How consulting. to send an email. <laughs> how to send an email, exactly. How to send an email passive aggressively to get what you want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, exactly. So learn all of those things. But my main takeaway was actually that business is great. Different industries are great, but healthcare is so much better than everything else. Um, you know, yeah. I was working on a project uh, around car parking and I literally had to work in a car park in Brussels for <laughs> four months. So, you know, that was definitely not the highlight of my career today. Uh, and so I realized, you know, healthcare is really what I need to get back into. So I started looking at what the options were there. And actually one of my, so my boss actually when I was at McKinsey uh, uh, was a person called Kai, who I said when I was leaving McKinsey, if there's anything really cool that he ever ends up doing, he should let me know. Mm. And he had actually come up with the idea for Aviva, with a doctor uh, who's a pediatric endocrinologist in Switzerland. 
And, you know, we were inspired by WellDoc and Blue Star, which was the first prescription digital app, basically yeah. digital therapeutic now known as. Yeah. Uh, and the idea that that could be reimbursed, that you could provide a treatment benefit was really exciting. And then the specific idea that he had was around children with complex obesity and they would either not come to their appointments or be staring at their phone in their appointments. And he thought there has to be a better way of trying to engage people a little in, in improving their health. Smartphones were becoming much more common and prevalent. Mm. And so, you know, Clyde said, you know, this seems like a pretty cool idea. Is it something that we should look into? And then, you know, obviously looking at the market at the time, it was kind of 2014, 15, smartphones were coming off. The idea of, you know, being able to digitize services was starting to emerge. And so basically took, took the leap. Um, the first year, year and a half was trying to work out how to run a business, like what payroll is, how to do your <laughs> tax returns, how to register a company. Yeah. Uh, just like all this crazy things that you don't realize at all. And, yeah. you know, people think consulting teaches you about business, but it teaches you zero mm. in comparison to like actually running a business. Uh, so that was a steep learning curve. Also, at the same time, obviously, we weren't paying ourselves. So I was working nights and weekends in A&E yeah. uh, to pay the bills. So that was fun. Uh, <laughs> and definitely quite the experience. <laughs> um, and then we kind of slowly started to figure it out. Basically, we realized kind of where, so we started in Switzerland and the UK kind of at the same time. And then in each country, we s worked out how we could apply our thinking to the, to the challenge that was there. So to give a, a hard example, so there's, you know, four, just over 4 million people in the UK with diabetes. There is about 4,500 dietitians working within the NHS. If you're going to scale that kind of expert behavior change resource to, to all of those patients, you need to find a way of digitizing and making a kind of much more scalable product to support all of those people. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the same challenge in all countries, you know, Switzerland uh, and then Germany and France, where we've expanded to. Again, they've got a very small number of expert sort of behavior change healthcare professionals, and they've got a very large number of people with conditions like diabetes and complex obesity. Uh, and so in each market, we have tried to understand how do we work with our key stakeholders? So how do we make sure patients are having a great experience? How do we make sure that we're serving doctors well? How do we make sure the health insurers are happy? And then also kind of all the regulatory agencies that you need to when you're building uh, this kind of product. Uh, so, you know, as a quick summary, you know, five years later, uh, we so we would say that we are a digital behavior change company. Mm -hmm. So we support people with health conditions related to diet. So mostly type two diabetes, pre-diabetes, complex obesity, to improve their health, lose weight, uh, improve blood glucose control, and kind of generally feel healthier and happier. Uh, we've supported 120,000 patients so far. We have six published studies showing the outcomes that we have, which are, you know, meaningful, clinically meaningful outcomes uh, for those patients and at least equivalent to face-to-face -face care. But what, you know, the, the, the profound effect that you see in the kind of services we deliver is a massive increase in access to care. So yeah. what we, you know, in, in type 2 diabetes, there's this kind of common 
uh, fact that it's around 10 to 20% of newly diagnosed people with type 2 diabetes in the UK attend kind of an education program to help them learn about their condition and start to improve their behavior. And there's many, many barriers for them, uh, you know, to, to go. Typically, it's just going to a face-to-face -face group is really hard. Taking time off work is hard. Prioritizing that against other life issues is hard. Is it culturally appropriate for me? Is it in the right language? Uh, do I have to drive two hours? Uh, there's so many reasons why people can't access those types of services. Whereas if you make them remote and digitally enabled, uh, so you know our app, our coaches, our learning portal uh, means that they can access it kind of anywhere, uh, at any time that they want. It can all be asynchronous and you massively lower the barrier uh, to people engaging. And we've actually just uh, published a paper at Diabetes UK which shows how the people who are engaging are men, uh, BAME groups, working age populations, people who don't speak English as a first language. And we have much, much higher proportions of those patients than existing face-to-face -face services. So it's really incredible to see, you know, this complete transformation in access to care uh, for groups who actually tend to have the worst outcomes. Mm. Um, and that's really the mission that we're on now. It's incredibly impressive, mate. And I think, you know, when you talk about the impact that you've made, you've made it, as you say, across so many, well, you, you've widened access, haven't you? Um, and I think the attention that you've seen to have on the practicality of how this actually fits into people's lives is probably what separates you from most, if not all other companies, well, definitely in your space, but even more broadly than that in digital health. I mean, even there, you've, you know, you've talked so much about the, the real practicalities of how it might fit into people's lives and solve their problems. And it seems that that's what's in part certainly led to your success. I think there's, there's loads of elements that I want to talk to you about here. I mean, the fact that you, you, you deploy really specific strategies for each geography, this element of increasing access to care, even the asynchronous communication element is definitely the future of, of healthcare to make things more efficient. And I definitely want to talk to you about those things, but first, if I'm a if I'm a user of Aviva, if I'm a patient, what does it look like for me? Yeah, so critically, you're typically referred by your doctor, um, and you will, you know, you'll have a you know consultation with them about your yearly checkup for your diabetes, say, and it might be that your blood glucose is increasing, or you might have to start a new medication, and then your doctor will say, you know, there's a new program where you're going to get support from a, a dietitian or a health coach combined with um, an app and some and resources to kind of learn more about your condition and how to lose weight and you know how to improve your health and it's obviously covered it's for free on the nhs or, or covered by health insurance in our in our other geographies so we then um so we get that referral from their doctor we contact the patient uh kind of on their preferred method of format whether that's text email or phone uh explain what the program is so let's give an example our three-month uh program for people with newly di diagnosed type 2 diabetes is uh, diabetes support uh they'll explain it's a three-month program you're going to get weekly support from your dietitian um actually that's three times a week support sort of asynchronously via the app. They guide them to download the app, um, access the first resources, access some first videos around what is diabetes, uh, some dietary facts, you know, activity, mental health, stress, sleep, um, kind of all these things are covered. 
And then they work with that dietitian over those three months. Uh, they set some specific goals uh, that they work through. They track what they eat, drink uh, uh, in, the, in the app. Uh, they track their blood glucose, their activity levels. And then the dietitian can use all of that data to kind of guide them through behavior change that's you know, appropriate for them. Um, and you know, really trying to lean them towards that, that health goal outcome that they've set themselves. Um, and then kind of once they've completed that and achieved that, we uh, kind of discharge them back to their to primary care. Um, and then they can continue to use the app and our resources to, to keep them on track over time. And then obviously if they need to kind of come back in the future. Um, and this is actually a really interesting and critical point that an endocrinologist once said to me, what, when you give someone a antihypertensive or a blood pressure medication yeah. and it works, do you stop it? Obviously the answer is no. Mm. And then the, the return logic is, well, with a behavioral intervention, if you start it and it works, you know, should you stop it? Is, yeah. is an interesting question. That's a good point. Obviously the health system doesn't do that because it sees a behavioral intervention as a surgery almost yeah. that you should do it once yeah, and it absolutely. works and it's done yeah. but unfortunately behavioral interventions aren't like a surgery and one and done it is yeah people's lives change different things happen uh, different life events happen and actually you know behavioral interventions need to become much more integrated into people's lives as kind of part of their sort of their health journey for example mm -hmm. with diabetes you know you're living with diabetes for 20 years uh you know, that is going to be a health journey and you're going to need support along the way in different yeah. ways. So yeah. then, you know, making sure that we're keeping in contact with those patients and making sure what's available, they know what's available to them to keep on track over the long term. And I suppose, you know, you calling yourselves a digital behavior change company is such a nice way of putting it in the sense that most of healthcare is behavior change, you know, in terms of if you're trying to convince someone to do something or to not to do something or to take something or to have some, you know, a lot of most of some people say healthcare is behavior change. And I think you guys have obviously got the appreciation of that. I mean, you can talk about AI, you can talk about machine learning and blockchain and all these things. And you guys talk about apps, but you're, you're talking about your app as basically the the, the vehicle for delivering the information it's the communication tool it's the it's the emr it's it's capturing the information it's not it's not the centerpiece it's not a bit of technology that's promising to do everything you guys have got the appreciation perhaps because people like yourself are leading the company with your clinical background you know that that actually the most of the ground here is going to be going to be made through behavior change and actually that requires people it requires a blended model you can't do that purely through technology because people People respond to people that's how people want to be cared for and actually whilst some elements are more scalable than others involving technology there's always going to be an element as you say for this to work and be sticky of coaching I guess if that's similar to your belief yeah I mean definitely I think the the whole point is it's a it's a person who is living with their health condition and they don't want an app they right. want a way of improving their health yeah. You know, that is their objective. And yeah. so you have to find a way of making sure that you're supporting their objective. And I think the, you know, starting with the patient's motivation and, you know, if you're being sort of simplistic, like the Michael Porter job to be done, and then you have to work backwards. And unfortunately, that actually often means that you can't just have a piece of technology. And, mm. and I know, you know, investors in this space are obviously looking for kind of the, you know, the, the very model. high margin <laughs> SaaS models, That's which... It 
you know, would, would be lovely if we could do that uh, and kind of just offer that up to the patient and you get a really high engagement and really high utilization. But I think the critical learning of digital therapeutics and and kind of all of you know healthcare and technology and behavior change is that the utilization rates for purely digital products is basically zero. Yeah. The you know the the retention profiles, you know, you're gonna get sort of maybe five percent, maybe ten percent of patients who are highly self-motivated, who are going to read all the information themselves and use it. But the vast majority of people you know, do want that extra human element. They want the accountability. They want the support that sits behind that to help guide them through the journey that they're on with their health. And, you know, that requires this kind of mixed model where you're optimizing kind of between kind of human support and then the kind of automated sort of uh, coaching that you can do uh, to make it as efficient as possible. Uh, But if you don't have that focus on the patient, you're never going to get to the patient numbers that you need to have a meaningful impact. Yeah, and I think it's just such a good point for, for the investors listening, but I suppose also the entrepreneurs listening that are building businesses that, that have got an, an, an idea of the unit economics and actually perhaps that should be shifted and perhaps you know, you've know you got to remember it can't be the same software models as in other industries. It just is impossible. But the next thing I want to talk to you about, mate, is the, the strategy which you launched. It was pretty bold, I suppose, to launch in two separate countries at the same time. I mean, you obviously trusted the fact you had a really talented team and you to lead things in the UK and your colleagues to do so in Switzerland. But I think also with that, you obviously had the knowledge, the information, the, the skill sets, the experience to really understand the systems in which you were working in those countries. And I think what it sounds like that's led to, and from what I've seen anyway, is you guys being really involved in the ecosystem. You know, you're, you're really at the center of it. You, you speak to policymakers, you speak to clinicians, you speak to patients, you speak to like the investors, you know, everything within the healthcare system, and obviously from a policy side in the NHS and all those things, you're well integrated into all of that stuff with all your NHS customers and things. And I think, it's just that it, I'm interested in how you approach that in the UK. And I'm also, I guess, admiring the fact that you managed to do that in two countries at the same time. I don't know if you've got an opinion on that. So, you know, in European healthcare, every market is incredibly different. And I think that's something we didn't even realize how different each yeah. market is. Uh, the And, you know, this is kind of the challenge on, Europe, you know, Europe versus the US in that, in the US, it is it is state by state differences, but it is one market. Whereas yeah. in Europe, it is different markets, and they are smaller, and they all have their own needs. Um, and then in healthcare, our you know my kind of belief is that everything is about trust and relationships because you're talking about people's lives, and they want to see that you you know are doing everything you can do around evidence, around governance, around uh, kind of working with clinicians in the right way to be adopted uh, and that actually you know requires having a presence within each country with someone who is really a market expert within that country and can bring their relevant experience to build those relationships um, and you do almost need to operate it as kind of individual teams with each within within each geography because they have to work through as you say you know the the regulatory side the the political side the reimbursement side and they are all and they're all different in their own ways um in terms of you know going to multiple places i guess the 
you know, the other way of thinking about it is that if you want to build a really big business, you can't do it in Switzerland necessarily. Yep. Uh, you need to be in multiple geographies. You know, you need to be in the EU5. If you're a pharma company thinking about launching a new product, you're basically thinking North America, Japan, and Western Europe. And that's the kind of scale that you need to think about if you're having a massive healthcare impact. And then our vision as a company uh, is to help 50 million people lead healthier and happier lives by 2025, which is a pretty wow. strong and powerful vision uh, in terms of volume of people treated. And there's no way of doing that if you just stick within, you know, one or two geographies. So I think Absolutely. from the outset, we've had a kind of global perspective on how to, you know, how do we support as many people as possible? Um, and that, you know, that's kind of led us to the approach that we've taken. And just on that, obviously, with such a big vision, you need to grow a company very quickly, as you've said, which does involve multiple geographies that obviously involves quite a lot of upfront capital as well. So how easy was it for you to raise investment in this space at that time? When did you guys, what, what year was it that you guys started? So we started in earnest in 2015. Okay, fine. And uh, so five years now. So not not that long ago, but still, you know, things move on quickly. There's more and more startups now, definitely less so when you guys started. So yeah, what was the investment journey like for you guys? So fortunately there was quite a few companies in the US that were started around the same time, kind of which showed the proof of concept of kind of digital behavior change. And people saw that market was kind of growing and actually starting to explode in the US. And uh, as last week, uh, Teladoc and Livongo merged. And, you know, for Livongo, that was an incredible exit at $18.5 billion. Mm. Uh, and they are, you know, and that is to do with the fact that they're a diabetes management company and having a low friction digital behavior change product, uh, which they do, is going to be critical to managing that over the, over the long term. So I think all investors uh, see the huge potential in, in this space. You know, diabetes alone costs 10% of the NHS budget, so nearly £14 billion pounds per year. So convincing everyone that this was a massive challenge and that digital is going to be the solution was not the problem, I would say. I think everyone sees that problem and that there was going to be some winners and there will be a Lavongo in Europe and there will probably be several Lavongos in Asia and, uh, and China. Um, the question though is, are you a, a kind of backable team and are you going to execute against that opportunity? Um, and I think we benefited from being relatively early into the space uh, kind of and getting some traction and getting some really good clinical data. And, you know, the critical thing throughout has been, can you actually generate revenue and, you know, actually sell your product? Uh, because you can build, you know, the greatest uh, digital solution. Uh, but if you either don't have a very high number of users or, you know, revenues, uh, then it's very hard to prove that you're getting traction. Um, and we've been, because we sit within healthcare and the reimbursed landscape, we've been fortunate enough, you know, to be able to have meaningful revenue growth kind of through our history uh, and i think that kind of proof of concept that this is actually you know this is actually a good market you can actually get revenues and the fundamental opportunity is enormous has meant uh you know we've had always had lots of good conversations 
not to say that it was, you know, it was not a huge amount of effort and time uh, to get, you know, all the, the funding rounds we've raised. So we closed our Series B in January. And on the traction point, I've got to ask this while you're here. You guys, I, rem- I remember being at LBS actually, and it was some event anyway, and you, you were up there speaking and you put up a slide of all your kind of NHS partnerships, customers, that side of things. And I, I knew a bit from obviously the Digital After London Accelerator when you guys were on it. And it was a little bit of time after that. And you'd, you'd made so much progress. Just the, the sheer amount of, you know, customers that you had in the NHS was just so impressive, given that that was my job for 18 months, trying to help startups do that and knowing how difficult it was and just seeing how you guys had done it was just so impressive. I suppose my question is, what's your secret for, for doing that? Incredible achievement. I mean, that would be telling, obviously. <laughs> uh, you know, it actually goes back to the earlier point, which I was saying about what you need to be successful in healthcare. It is trust and relationships. Yeah. That is, is critical yeah. to everything. And if you can be a clinician with, you know, in my, uh, in my UK team, you know, we a significant portion of our leadership team is clinicians and you can have, a conversation about how you're going to improve patient care, then actually improve patient care and bring back data with your outcomes, your patient engagement levels, your patient feedback, your NHS friends and family test score, and not only do that once, but do that in diabetes education, diabetes prevention, diabetes remission, you know, specialist weight management services, yeah. you know, pediatric allergy, like the, the, you know, the different areas that we have kind of gone through over the years. And I think you, you build that trust and reputation that you kind of deliver what you say you're going to deliver. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and as long as you keep the patient and the system at the heart of your thinking, uh, you can get relatively well adopted. Um, yeah. And I think, that point about the system is critical is that you have to understand the environment that you're working within. And there is a whole host of things that are table stakes in healthcare that people coming from a software background don't quite understand. And I didn't quite understand. So your level of investment in kind of information governance in clinical governance in compliance processes uh, is going to be much, much higher. You know, it's almost like financial services, right? You have to think about, you know, that core, uh, compliance factor of your organization and that helps you be you know be successful uh, and be safe in terms of how you how you deliver care so um, it's thinking about the system aspects that you have to cover off you make it sound so simple but obviously it isn't do you think do you think you you've hit a critical mass with it now that it gets easier because you've got so many case studies because you've got so much data to point to is it easier now? Are you, are you getting cold approaches from that side of the world? So I think when people hear about you and hear about your data, that is very helpful. And yeah. this year, we are publishing a number of uh, you know new papers and new research, uh, which is showing some really fantastic outcomes. And I think that kind of clinically led discussion presenting at conferences you definitely get a lot of interest from that angle if that makes sense it does make sense mate i think the 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 interesting thing there is obviously that for me you you guys seem pretty wholesome from that point of view in the sense that you're a health tech company 
but you do have a foot in academia. You mentioned the six studies, you mentioned another one, you know, publishing soon. You're not afraid to, to really test yourselves to prove that it works. Obviously you can improve yourselves along the way with all that, all those results and feedback. But I think having that foot in both camps means that, you know, for, for high up clinicians that also have got a foot in academia as well as clinical medicine, all the rest of it, that are going to have a serious opinion on whether they implement a technology like yours and a company like yours and a product like yours. I think it really adds a, a, le- a layer of credibility to you that even though you're willing to, to look at yourselves with, with that kind of critical view, but then obviously the fact that the data backs up how good you are, it must make people feel a lot more comfortable knowing that that's your approach. Yeah, and I think that is, you know, anyone, I think my first piece of advice to anyone within this space is if you have a clinical product or a patient facing product, your outcomes are going to be the number one question in any door that you go into, especially in the NHS, but also in health insurers in Switzerland, Germany and France and the clinicians there, they're all going to be asking you exactly the same question. So you need to prioritize your, you know, your research and academic strategy from day one. And it has to be fundamental to what you're doing. You know, if you look at the US companies, they raise significant amounts of equity early to do their studies. Like that is a significant chunk of their early yeah. investment rounds. Like their series A, they're allocating a big chunk of that series A to do the research to prove that their product works. Um, wow. Whereas in, I think that that culture hasn't, come across as much in Europe. There's a few companies that do it, uh, but it it's definitely It's more a life isn't. sciences play, isn't it? It's it more is. more sort of a biotech play. It is. It is very much so. And I think that is where the market is going to go. I mean, there's a, there's the uh, sort of cynical expression from uh, the guy who is a, a Achille, uh, who says, you know, there is kind of digital health 1.0, which was basically the Wild West and a bunch of people developing apps that had no evidence base behind it. Yeah. And there's going to be a digital health 2.0, which is a num a smaller number of clinically led, you know, you know, research-minded, you know, hot, you know, real research organizations, as you say, that act much more like a life sciences or a pharma company than a uh, than a SaaS company. And those people, through the strength of their evidence and outcomes, are going to be the people that are going to be able to achieve reimbursement and are going to be able to scale because they're trusted because you know you need to have the trust of both the patient and the clinician to be able to be adopted it's so similar to what people like Hugh Harvey have said on this podcast you know that you know from his position in the ecosystem he sees all the people that are actively seeking the regulation the research that side of the world the more boring but extremely necessary side of the world and they move a bit slower to get everything in place but actually those are the people that are going to be around the longest rather than as you say the cowboys or they didn't say that particularly but you did say world west (laughs) other than the cowboys that are just trying to go at kind of breakneck speed and and without that kind of stuff it, it definitely seems um like the most the most real way it's going to go forward. So the next thing I want to ask you, you mate, is about... I was going to say, James, you can tell that you don't have that uh, academic and re- research background in saying that's the boring side of things, whereas actually, if you really get into the research, like things around like diabetes remission, you know, we have the, the papers that we're publishing, it really is kind of at the cutting edge of like, how do you manage these conditions? And, I and think that's the thing, you, right? It is, exci- it is exciting, I suppose, when you, when you as, the, as the innovators are getting this information back that you can then 
break a barrier down and you can build something or do something off the back of it, or you're seeing the results of something you've already done that for. Yeah, I suppose that, I suppose that is, it exciting. is exciting. It's more when Hugh Harvey's talking about like quality management systems and yeah. <laughs> like that side of the very world. True. That's very true. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, yeah, what I wanted to ask you, mate, was about about your growth. Obviously, you've just done a Series B. How much was your, how much was your Series B? Did you say twenty one million US? Lovely, lovely. And obviously, you're going to now go into an expansion. You must be hiring. What are you guys doing with with all that cash? Well, you know, with all of these things, as we've talked about, kind of, uh, you do have to invest in building your evidence base, building your research, building your compliance, kind of going through all of those processes and systems. And it is kind of, it is expensive to build those systems out. And, you know, if you look at the US companies, you know, the the Amadas and the Livongos have raised, you know, 500 million plus to kind of build their their products and services. So, uh, you know, you can see just how much, you know, you can put into building a fantastic product with fantastic clinical outcomes. So, you know, that is very much our, our focus. You know, how do we make sure that we have absolutely the best product out there uh, with the evidence base that sits behind it? And then also how do we, you know, basically scale within each of our geographies as you need to, you know, you need to be supporting more patients. If we're going to get to our vision of 50 million patients by 2025, we need to be rapidly increasing the number of patients treated. So you know, that's the, that's the other focus area. Nice. So who are you hiring for? Are you hiring across the board and, and how do people find out if they're, if they're interested in joining you guys? That's a uh, good question. So I have, so on my LinkedIn, I am regularly posting the new hires that <laughs> I we have, have seen. That's, <laughs> that's why my, I actually got in touch with you. That is basically my newsfeed of what <laughs> new roles we're hiring. And you know, it's across sales, it's across operations, it's clinical. Uh, uh, there's been some research roles we've hired and then um, we have sort of finished actually now our hiring of art from the tech side. So we brought a lot of people into the kind of tech and the product team as well, uh, which has been fantastic. And then obviously on our website, look out for the work for us page where we're putting out our new opportunities. Awesome. Um, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, mate. It's been good to catch up and hear about all the stuff you're doing. It sounds so exciting. And I imagine there is a plethora of things that you are doing that you can't talk about with how quickly you guys are doing things. But um, super impressive what you've built, mate. And um, I, I really look forward to seeing what you guys do in the future. And I suppose the way, well, the way that we end these podcasts is I just hand back over to you to give a bit of a bit of a background about yourself again, a bit of a summary, um, and just to tell you what, what, tell us what you're up to at Aviva and uh, close us out with any asks you might have of our audience. So by all means, take it away. No, definitely. And actually, I was actually going to finish asking you a question, James, which was, what was the moment when you knew that you weren't going to be in clinical medicine anymore? Because I had a very specific moment. Yeah, did you? I, I had, it was a, it was a slow progression for me. I think what it was, I was building up all the QI stuff, all the quality improvement stuff. I was writing more business cases. That side of the world was ramping up. It was, I suppose you could pinpoint it to, um, (laughs) I don't know how much of this I can actually say, but in fact, there was a moment, mate. When I was in A&E, I was was on um, an ITU on call shift and I got called down to A&E to see a patient and basically i i 
did the clinically appropriate management for that patient, which was basically to do nothing. Um, spoke to the family, etc., and rang the consultant and basically we had a very, very strong disagreement based on the reasoning that they didn't want to get out of bed and come in to, uh, to, to do something. And in that moment, I just, I just sort of realized that the, the, the priorities and the, and it, you know, it's not that consultant's fault. There's a, there's a reason behind everything, right? But it just struck me that the system was just so broken and I was trying to do all these things in my spare time to improve the system, to give people time back that they would actually care and all these different things. And it just sort of hit me in that moment that I was like, I just need to dedicate my time to this other side of the world because I'm just, I'm just, there's so much friction in what I'm doing every day. You know, I didn't ever feel that any day was easy for me because of all the problems that I kept seeing. And it was just this growing, growing, growing frustration. But I would say that that was actually the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will, that it was just this, this disagreement on, on what was such an obvious and basic case like so barn door of what to do, but for whatever reason, that consultant wanted to wait until other consultants came in before doing so. And it was, it was just, I don't know, it, it just hit me that the, the, the incentives were broken, the system was broken and that it just, it needed a different way to fix it. You know, um, I don't know if that chimes with you. Yeah, I mean, in, very interestingly, my actual story is not that dissimilar. It was, I was operating on a patient with a registrar at, four o'clock in the morning uh, and doing a laparotomy because we didn't exactly know what was going on. Uh, and we were, you know, operating at four o'clock in the morning. It wasn't quite clear what was going on. This person had multiple surgeries before. And, you know, we, it was then at five o'clock in the morning, we were calling a consultant. Yeah. You know, he's coming in at six o'clock in the morning. And, uh, you know, and actually he was, he was in immediately uh, from, from us calling him. So oh, wow. the situation was. Good for you. Uh, which is nice, uh, but it was actually more thinking, you know, is is this something that I can maintain for the next, you know, 40 years? And yeah. I think people don't realize how physically exhausting being a, being a doctor, especially being a surgeon is, you know, operating through the night uh, is is incredibly challenging mm. and uh, and the kind of the, the strain that puts on your body, you know, when you're 50, do you know, do you want to be coming in at operating at yeah. five o'clock in the morning when you're juniors? haven't been able to kind of do the job uh, yeah. themselves. Uh, and, uh, you know, at that moment thinking, you know, there's all of this huge change happening within the system and that just kind of always stood out as being more exciting and appealing than having to manage that 5am call. Uh, yeah, I totally agree, mate. And I think you and I, I don't know, I get the impression that, you, you know, you want to be the best at what you do. You want to do a really good job in what you do and you want to be diligent. You want to do everything well. And I think when you look at that, you know, extra 40 years of your life doing that, you would want to dedicate yourself to it, which at the same time, you then see the harm that would do to you because you care and because you want to do a good job and all the rest of it. It's difficult to kind of, I suppose, maintain both. And in that moment, you've obviously seen that. And, and certainly I did too. I just didn't want to face 40 years of fighting against the system for for. A, a standard of care that I thought everyone would, should be entitled to, you know? Yeah. Um, but again, yes. like with most things, if you want to make change, you'd have to go outside the system um, that you're currently in to sort of try and help create a new one, I guess. Exactly. Um, so yeah, man. Um, so yeah. Bit of a summary. Off, bit about what, you, what you're doing and uh, yeah, any asks to the, the audience. 
Um, so as a quick summary, I would say that I'm a, a doctor who's kind of tried to think about how do I support more patients than we you know one day at a time, one patient at a time. And, you know, digital health and is going to be the kind of solution to that in the next, you know, five, 10 years, we're going to have an incredible transformation of our healthcare system. And at Aviva, we are trying to show that digital behavior change therapy, especially in kind of diabetes and obesity is actually, or, you know, or should be the first line treatment for patients um, because it is so accessible. It is so much easier for people to fit in their lives and, you know, will become much more of a lifelong journey for the patient to keep on track and to, to keep improving their health, um, you know, as they, as they live with their condition. Um, and then in terms of kind of our ask is really, you know, we're super excited to speak to anyone who either wants to work with us or wants to understand more about how do we accelerate the adoption of these technologies. You know, the biggest challenge all digital health companies face is not competition from each other. It is actually how to attract funding, how to kind of, you know, win business, how to grow the number of patients they're treating. So I'm always very keen and interested to talk to anyone trying to work through that challenge and how do we get these things adopted faster because it will ultimately lead to the benefit of more patients in a short time frame. Amazing. And if people want to get in touch with you, Mark, what's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, so either add me on LinkedIn and please say why you're adding me. This is just like a general note for anyone who wants to connect with anyone on LinkedIn. There is the ability to write a quick note which says why you're reaching out and you're always likely to get a more positive experience uh, from that <laughs> person if you actually go to the effort of writing why you're connecting to them. Uh, and then otherwise you can reach me on my email uh, at mark.jenkins at oviva.com. Awesome. Always interested to hear from Thanks for coming on, mate. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks, James. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.